the inventor of the bomb, cleared over deck with us and said, the work you have to do here, you'll be sterile for five years. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Bill Fitzgerald was the first chief of an Australian clearance diving team. We spoke with Bill in an aged care facility, so you might hear a little background noise from time to time. This is our chat with Bill about the daring work of the inaugural Royal Australian Navy Clearance Divers and how they were united and undaunted in their service. I'm Angus Horden, and we're in Warry Wood today speaking with 90-year-old Bill Fitzgerald. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, Bill, here we are in February 2020, and I'd like to start off with asking, when and where were you born? I was born in Chatswood, Victoria Avenue, in the Cottage Hospital. Right, and when was that? 23rd of March, 1929. So, Bill, can you tell us how your parents met, please? My father was in the Navy. He just returned the submarines to... Uh, the UK. He met my mother and my mother was born in Southsea. She lived in 17 Temple Street, Southsea, and Dad used to meet her underneath the clock on the Southsea Railway Station. In 87, I went over to the UK and because Mum had told me all these stories, I actually went to the Southsea Station and stood on the same spot where they'd met. I then walked up through the Barra Boys section and that's where Mum pinched the potatoes during World War Two, uh, World War One, and took it home. Her mother said, "Take it back. You can't steal things." She took the potato back, and the man gave her three more to take home. So I found Temple Street. I walked down to the pub where they used to have a drink. Mum used to sneak out, go down the pub, have a drink with Dad, and then eat peppermints to get rid of the smell of the alcohol. So, Bill, you grew up in the shadow of the Great Depression? Three pennies of mint steak, three pennies of soup vegetables. Used to last us a week when we were young. Mum used to make dough boys, of course, sweet ones and sour ones, one for the stew and one for dessert afterwards, which used to fill us up. And how many siblings did you have? I had three at that time. By 1938, three brothers. And your dad was still in the service at this stage? He was out of the Navy in 1929 when they disarmed. He was a fleet reservist and he re-entered the Navy in 1939 when war broke out. What was his service during the war? He uh, came home the night in uniform, knocked on the door, said, get your mother. So I went in and I said to Mum, there's a bloke in uniform at the door, you better come and see him. So she did. That was Dad. She said, what are you doing? Oh, she he said, It'll be about five years, Flo, that's all this war. Don't worry about it. Well, he said five years then. Wow. 1939, 
And he said in 1939, it'll last about five years. He's one of the few guys that actually was right about that. Yeah. Anyway, he, uh, mum said to him, what are you doing? Where are you going? Oh, he said, I'm on the Australia. It's a big cruiser, three-funnel cruiser. And she said, yes, but when are you going away? He said, Monday, we're taking the divisions over to Africa. That was the 6th and 9th Division. And what was his posting on board the Aussie? Chief Petty Officer Torpedo Gunner's mate at that time. So he sails. Was he mostly on the Aussie or he was, I understand, deployed into the N-Class later? He joined the N-Class when the British gave the five N-Class to the Australian Navy. And I think that's significant because the British actually gave us the N-Class. They owned them, but we crewed them. That's right. And, and those ships served with great distinction, especially in the Mediterranean. And I and the Atlantic. And I understand that your dad was on Nesta. Yes, he was the survivor of Nesta. Uh, Stuka dive bombers were bombing the ship and uh, one of their bombs clanced off the mast and exploded beside the boiler room, killing all in the boiler room, which put the ship out of action. The uh, surgeon lieutenant on that ship was a fellow named Shane Watson. He donned the breathing set and went in to the boiler room and brought the bodies out. And he ended up our doctor in underwater medicine in 1955. Wow. So another career Navy man like yourself. Yeah. Your dad survived Nesta, and it's interesting you say it was a German because there is a debate whether it was an Italian or German ship, so I'm uh, a plane that attacked. No, it was Nesta. a German Stuka died bomber. Yeah, good. He was there. I've read his memoirs. Yes, I mean, they were very effective, unfortunately. Well, they were. And actually, just prior to the Mediterranean action, I know Nesta had been posted in the Bismarck hunt and, and had been lucky not to have engaged Bismarck, well, that's right. but could have. He was in the Atlantic convoys. Could you tell us then what happened to your dad? Because obviously Nestor was sunk. He was then posted where? Well, he went into Alexandria. The javelin picked them up. The javelin towed the Nestor for quite some time. But because of the air raids that were going on, they had to scuttle and sink her. Dad set the depth charges to sink Nestor. She wouldn't sink. The captain just cried. Rosenthal was the captain. And... Uh, she just would not sink. So they got javelin to throw a few depth charges under her. Set at 50 feet, 410 pound of HC, broke her back, and away she went. The Salvation Army kitted him up with some clothes, and then he was dispatched to London. And he worked in London on bomb and mine disposal. All torpedo men did that work in those days. In his memoirs, he's, he's written, we had this English man in a truck and he was carrying four depth charges, but he didn't know what they were. And when we exploded the first one and it put the fire out, he asked what the other three were, and Dad said, depth charges. Oh, depth charges. I'm not carrying them anymore. <laughs> and that's interesting what you're saying. He was using depth charges to put the fires out in London. That's right. Because they didn't have enough water or...? Not enough water. This is high-density housing, high-density stuff. And so when that explosion happens... You get a compression of the atmosphere and all the oxygen in that atmosphere is burnt up. So did your dad do that for the rest of the war effectively? No. After two and a half years, he'd been away two and a half years by this time, Rosenthal decided to bring home the people that had been away the longest and dad was one of them. So he came back in 1943 and joined Warramunga, tribal class destroyer, and uh, during... 
trials from Jervis Bay up to Sydney. Dad, of course, were working on torpedoes. And when you're working on torpedoes, torpedo tubes are trained on the beam and the LTOs were working on the blowing heads because they were going to fire them, practice torpedoes. So he told the captain, straight course, don't alter course. She was doing 35 knots, they altered course. Two two-tons torpedoes came out of the torpedo tubes, killed the blokes on the guardrails and went straight over the side. I won't tell you the name of that captain, but I know his name and I met him. What a pity he didn't listen. Yeah, I bet he regrets that forever. Um, did your dad stay on Warramunga for He a while? stayed on Warramunga until he was discharged. He was discharged as a senior commission gunner, brackets T. His captain's Perth, I've still got the letter, a fine officer, done his duty to my satisfaction. And that was very good. He left Warramunga when they sent him to Goodnam Mental Home. That was about early 44 because they maintained that he had uh, manic depression. But he didn't have manic depression. What he had was shell shock. We, we call it PTSD today. Yeah, I know. Oh, poor fellow. And, and then after everything that had happened to your dad, knowing all this, you then decide to enlist in the Navy. Yes, I did. P- please tell us when you did that. 30th of May, 1946. So what made you decide to do that, considering what the Navy and the war had done to your dad? Didn't matter. I wanted to join the Navy. I wanted to follow in my father's footsteps. When they tried to make me a gunner, I said, I'm not going to be a gunner. I'm going to be a torpedo man. And they said, you're going to be a gunner. I said, I'm not. I said it three times. So I presented a examination paper with nothing on it. I want to be a torpedo man. That's all that was written on it. My divisional officer called me in and said, I know your father. And I said, I will. So he said, if you don't do this course and qualify, you'll be going to New Guinea. So I thought, okay. And I was pulling bombs out from under wharves and God knows what else. I mean, World War II was supposed to be finished, but it wasn't. The occupational forces were still going to Japan. And the skipper of the Duntroon would not go alongside the wharf because of the bombs that were under it. So I done a modified diving set, went down and pulled the bombs out, got the bombs out. They were 500-pound armour-piercing Japanese bombs. Jap Navy, Jap Navy bombs have got rivets on them. Jap Army bomb, a clean skinned, but all tail fuse. Took the fuses out, pulled the bombs up, took them away and blew them up. And this was just after the war had finished? Yeah, that was 1947. My uh, Master Sergeant, Army, he gave us a job to do on an island on the equator, and it was a big one. Too big for them because the safety distance was at least three miles when we let it go. The island was as big as Clark Island in Sydney, stockpiled. And our putt-putt wouldn't, <laughs> the putt-putt wouldn't work. So we had to use a 12-foot dinghy. So we went in by 12-foot dinghy, took for two and a half days to lay out the ring main. We had to get rid of all the natives that had built their homes in between the stacks of bombs. There was 1,000-pound thin-walled HE bomb, for mustard gas, 500-pound armour-piercing, 500-pound 250-piercing, and by the time we had everything ready to go, all we had was two cans of safety fuse, 25 foot to the can, and you burn one foot, and it burns one foot in 30 seconds. So scarf the ends, join them together, tape them to a stick so they don't fall back on each other, and we set the charges. It wasn't a controlled detonation because we didn't have wire to set an electric debt 
three mile long. And neither did the Yanks, and that's why we got the job. So comes the moment of truth. Pop Clapley said, have you got your masters? I said, yeah. I scarfed the fuse, shut it with the box. Fuse burning brightly. He said, don't run down to the beach. Just take your time. So we went down to the beach, and you wouldn't want to know, the tide had gone out. Now we've got 20 minutes to get three mile in that boat when the tide comes in. Well, eventually the tide came in. We started the row. Pop sitting in the afterthought, and he said, don't turn round. I'll tell you when we're going to hit the side of the diesel tug. DT-933 was the number of that tug. She had bulwarks right round, made of steel. As soon as his hands came up and helped me row, I knew it was getting time to bang time, and it was going to be a big one. And sure enough, we just got there, bumped. He said, quick, over the side. Got over the side, lay down on the deck, and up she went. He said, what do you see? Wait a minute, wait a minute, hang on. It's all plopping around us, the shrapnel. The putt-putt falls off the Davids, cut, cut the rope that the putt-putt was hoisted. The yard arm fell off the tug. It was all cut as well. The whole port side was taken, every bit of paint gone. And he said, right, you can have a look now. I said, why don't you? You're the officer. So I had a look. He said, what do you see? I said, nothing. My God, what have we done? I said, don't worry about it. It was a sympathetic detonation. It didn't matter about running the ring main. I mean, the rest of those bombs went. So did they took the rest with them. He said, what are we going to say in the report? So he took us down to the quarter deck. He said, put your left hand on your heart. And we all did. Put your right hand up in the air. Today, we have witnessed an earthquake on the equator and an island has disappeared. <laughs> so the biscuit bomber came over a fortnight later, dropped the mailbag with more explosive in, mostly army slabs and primers and stuff. And I was the swimmer, so I swam out and got it. He opened the bag and there's the Sydney truth. Big headlines. Earthquake on the equator. Island disappears. And, and Bill, this is just one of your bomb exploding experiences. Yeah, that's right. With just many one to of come. Them. Wow. And and I understand that in nineteen fifty two you were involved in the recovery of items from the Montebello atomic site over in, in Western Australia. Yeah, end of nineteen fifty two. We were the guard ship, Hawkesbury. I'd just come back from the Korean War in Merseyson. We'd been trapped in the Hangan River. We got a few holes in us and we were under continuous machine gun fire from the shore all the time. I did all the soundings in that river to get the ship into a position to bombard. 8,000 soundings we did by lead and line. And the skipper, when I used to report, oh, we shot up again, he'd say, well, you've got to go back tomorrow. I need that boy. So, so how far off the shore were you? Oh, we were right in. Yeah, so small arms. 200 he, yards. Oh, yes. Yeah, very vulnerable. He said, look at the fish jumping out of the water. I said, yeah, they were fish all right. Heavy machine gun bullets. That was merciful. And the Hawkesbury, of course, was the guard ship. So a ship that usually had 200-odd men was now down to 85 because they knew we were going. So William Penny, the inventor of the bomb, cleared over deck with us and said, the work you have to do here, you'll stare off for five years. And you still went? We still did the job. We were ordered to do it, and we did it. I had two sons before the Monte Bellows and didn't have a daughter until five years after. And she was born with a tumour behind her eye, and her daughter was born with a low lesion spina bifida. 
Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And in England, they gave them the world, not our country. We got the gold card. But I had the gold card for more service. I didn't need another one. One's enough. The ABC took it up and they were going to fight the fight, but it didn't come to anything. Mr Menzies was the Prime Minister at the time, used Australia for your testing. Um, I believe that just prior to that, back in 48, you'd actually met Madge, your wife. The Lunar Park Dance was on the pontoon. It was a dance palais, Lunar Park Dance Palais. And there was a little bridge going over to the, to the pontoon. And she was there with the girlfriend. They were both 16 years of age. And I heard the girlfriend say to Madge, go on, go on, do the drawback. So she took a cigarette off her and went and fainted. <laughs> I caught her. Took her around to the security, the red caps, and uh, he said, oh, I'll give her a drink of water and aspirate, she'll be okay, but you better take her home, mate. She's a good-looking one. I said, yeah, she's not bad, is she? And the red cap said, yeah, go. But I'd already bought a girl for the dance <laughs> with me. Terry Ruse was her name. So I said to Terry, look, they've told me to take match home. She's not well. You're just doing your duty. And she said, what about me? I said, well, you can come over to Circular Quay with us on the ferry, but we've got to catch a train to somewhere out Sylvania. That's near Mexico. <laughs> so that was the beginning. We went to the Bruce to try to get married, and he said, no, come back when you're older. You're a Navy man. You probably have girls in every port. I said, no way. Anyway, I went back when I was 20. I was 19 then, and she was 17, and he married us. And, Bill, you've been together with Madge still today. 70 years. You're wonderful. Well done to you. Now, Bill, if we move forward in 1955, the Navy establishes its clearance diving school and you're in the first class. That's right. And I've seen your photo with the other boys. Yes. I suppose it's difficult for you to appreciate what you were actually signing yourself up for then. No, I was quite happy with it because it was bombing my disposal and I'd already done the work. So very simple for me to just go over to the clearance diving side. Now, the diving equipment is only to get to the job that you're trained to do. It's a secondary thing. It's like a taxi that takes you to it. So what was the criteria for joining the group? I mean, you had prior experience. Well, here we go. Above average intelligence, young, healthy, can-do attitude. The impossible sometimes takes a bit longer. And so long as you remember that and you keep your mouth shut, you'll make a good clearance diver. Now, I'm over age. I'm 25. And these are all young, 18, 19-year-olds. Ron Hillen was one of the instructors. Ron Hillen, my father, my dad was his instructor and he was an LTO, leading hand. So he says to me, you're going to have to do most of the instruction, you know that. And I said, yeah, no trouble, Ron. No trouble at all. That's the Ferris wheel we've been on. I've been on the Ferris wheel all my life. In the Navy. It's interesting because I know many guys in their mid-20s were actually in command of ships mm. at the beginning of the war. So when you say you were in your mid-20s and you were an old guy compared to the young guys, you were regarded as an old guy, not well, that we were... Well, had to make me a special case to join that course. Because you were the first chief of that unit. I was the chief on the Eastern Area Mobile Clearance Diving Team, which is now Team 1. There was 12 on that deployment that we used to go on, 12 divers. They've now got 60, but they do a lot of things. And, and in the West, we've got Team 4, another 60. And when they go on deployment, they take some from 4, some from 1, call it 3, and they go on deployment. They're in Afghanistan, Sudan, Iraq right now. 
the most heavily decorated branch of the Navy. Other divers, special forces of the Navy. And, and Bill, what has been the role of the clearance divers, I mean, initially in the 50s and 60s? Well, how about the story of the USS Peary in Darwin? Because she was sunk in one of the initial air raids. 1942. She was a uh, flush deck four pack destroyer, four funnels. She was built in 1919. She served in the Pacific all those years. Come the war, they sent her over to the Philippines. She had a refit and then she went to Darwin. She was anchored on the approaches to the Darwin Wharf in 110 feet of water. When the Japanese attacked the end of 42, she got a stick of five armour-piercing Jap Navy bombs, so she sank. There was about 85 killed. Yes, big loss of life. Big loss of life on her. And uh, the survivors were taken down to Fremantle, put in hospital. So we were asked to do the clearances of Perry, same as in the Montebello's, we had to do the clearance of radioactive stuff. Well, we had to do the clearance of Perry. We only had one hour per day slack water. Is that because of the tides? Yeah, 25 knots. Yeah, huge. And it's a 25-foot tide too. And before she was cut up, we had to make sure that the ordnance was safe. You could only dive an hour at low tide or an hour at high tide. And in that hour, you had to do a lot of work. I mean, you couldn't swim through the... Central line passageway or the port and starboard after mistakes because they were full of mud. We had to swim through them, hanging on to the pipework, knowing which way we were going. No visibility. And we had to uh, render safe the torpedo warheads with the uh, contact pistols on them and the CCR pistols. She had four or five each side of the ship because they were rotating, detonated in, detonated out with the flow of the tide. Bill, do I recall correctly that you were a bit mischievous in one of these dives? Well, we'd been up to the RSL and we told the bloke at the RSL, the manager, that we'd get him a pair of torpedo propellers off the Perry and we'd mount them on a lovely board with a presentation thing to the RSL at Darwin. And he said, oh, that's lovely. I'll buy you a lot of beer if you do that. And I said, well, that's good. So we're down on the deck, opened the rear door of one of the fixed torpedo tubes I said, Tom, go in and feel if there's any propellers on this torpedo. So he clambers into the torpedo tube and then there was a guardrail on the deck. So I picked it up and I just bashed the torpedo <laughs> tube. There was no pistol in the torpedo. It was like, okay, we'd do louse that. But Tom swum backwards. I've never seen it in my life before. And then he tried to have a fight with me. And this is all underwater. Yeah, this is all down there in 110 feet of water. So he's grabbing hold of my tonflu's <laughs> hose, trying to pull my mask off and backing into me. And there was two Japs in standard diving dress sitting on the yard arm watching the fight. <laughs> <laughs> so you finished that work on Perry. You then go on and do other exciting jobs, like there was some very difficult work to be done at Ucombeam Dam in 62. Yeah, big jobs. Tell us about that because that was cold, it was deep, it was difficult. All dam water's freezing. We had wetsuits and jumpers underneath our dry suit that they warm. You can't feel your hands at all. And we've got to take all the trash tracks out of the tower, 240 feet down, to make it safe for the diver to go in. Now, I was first diver down again. In the teeth, I'd made up all the uh, air breathing equipment, the oxygen equipment, etc., 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 and everything was ready to go. And I knocked out 
at 260 feet became not cleanly out of my brain. And I remember the calls over the radio, can you see anything? I said, no. Are you sure? I said, I'm telling you, I can't see nothing. Two 100 candle power lights, 1,000 candle power on each shoulder. Couldn't see a thing. Pitch black. I'd hit the first depth, which was dive mould. Scrambled through that right to the bottom. But I didn't know I'd done that. By about 12 minutes, I'm now suffering pretty bad narcosis because they're doing this dive on air because our government would not buy helium from the Americans or the Canadians. So we had to do it on air. We hadn't been doing these deep dives. No. I mean, I think you were diving up to like 100 feet or something and here you are almost doing three times that. Yeah, but what we did... We had a 30-day workup to 300 feet in the recompression chamber that we took with us. Anyway, I get blown up to the surface by the clown that was running the air. No stops. Felt the foot on my head, dropped straight back, went down to 110 feet and started my stops. Converted to uh, Puro 2 at 18 metres, which cuts your stops by two and a half times and then eventually surfaced an hour and a half later. How are you, Bill? I said, shit here. Terrible. I said, I think I'm going to get the staggers out of this. Rex Gray was the doctor on the pontoon. He said, if you dive again tomorrow, I'm not going to be on the pontoon. So, so did you have the recompression chamber there? Yes. Good. So did you get into it? No, no. They laid me down and gave me pure oxygen and I was okay. Oh, thank God. He was a very good underwater medicine specialist. But Bill, this is very much experimental at this stage. They'd built this wonderful dam at Eucumbin, but they'd had this problem with the leak and they thought, well, we've got to fix it from the inside. And it was easier to experiment with a couple of divers, hopefully to patch it from the inside. Did you end up fixing it up? It was fixed. It took six months. Eucumbin was nine times the volume of Sydney Harbour at that time. If that leak hadn't been stopped, the whole Eucumbin water would have gone down into the Murray Valley. And that's what they were scared of. You leave Eucumbin, I mean, you keep doing these incredible jobs and you're later on the Melbourne as the fleet diving chief getting back onto a carrier, our major ship at the time. I was very happy as the fleet diving chief. I had a good crew with me. I had two clearance divers and four ship divers and I trained them up. I trained them up to jump off the flight deck and do all the things that you've got to do in the event if you get crashed aircraft. And so we started the SAR diving at Special Air Rescue in Singapore Harbour, experimentally. You've told us many of your stories, but um, I'm also aware that you helped in giving repairs to a submarine at sea and you patched the hull of a US Navy ship to help it... Yeah, Get back yeah. to Pearl Harbour. Yes, tell us about those stories. Yeah, well, the Tabard was a sub and the whole fleet was going on exercises. Anti-submarine exercises. I was on Melbourne at the time. What year was this roughly, Bill? 61, no, 63. 1963, that was. So I was called to the bridge and they said, the submarine can't dive. We're all up here to do it, but she can't dive. What are you going to do about it? I said, well, I'll go over and have a look. So they flew us over by chopper, had a look, told the captain, who only wore a pair of grey slacks and a jumper, so I didn't know he was a captain, I said, have you got any dry cigarettes on you? He said, what do you want that for? I said, I want to have a fag before I go in. Anyway, I said, well, your main inlet cannot be used because you've just come out of dockyard hands and there's sand up in the worm drive. That's why you can't open it and you can't close it. 
and he wouldn't know because he hadn't been down to see it like you had. So I said, well, I want a damage control plug the same size as the outlet. So they gave me the big damage control plug, a seven-pound slavish hammer, placed it into position, and as the boat went past me, I hit it with the hammer. Then it jump up, I hit it again with the hammer, down again, hit it again with the hammer, and she sealed. Now, this allowed them to pull the valve down inside. The captain was worried that if it came out, the submarine would flood and sink. I said, well, that's what you wanted to do, isn't it? He, he said, no. I said, look, it'll be okay. He said, anyway, you won't have to take it out. I said, why not? He said, I'll just go full ahead, out of port. We'll put fresh on it and blow it out. I said, you won't, you know. I knocked it in. See, and what happens with those damage control plugs, they swell in the water, they get bigger and they fit tighter. And he didn't know that either. So here he goes, going ahead, going astern, going right, going left. Then he said, I'll give you the cigarette. <laughs> you might as well go back in the water and knock it out. I said, on one condition, that you take all pressure off that valve because if that would come out and hit me, it'd kill me. So I knocked it, knocked it, knocked it, knocked it, and a few bubbles started to come out beside it. Then all of a sudden it came and I went like that. Otherwise, I'd worn it. I have been dead. So, Bill... You had to jump aside, or you're in the water, yeah. and you had to move aside as this huge propulsion of air That's right. was expended. That's right. Now, were you down there by yourself? Was there yeah, another dive on my own? But my OIC, Len Graham, was hanging on to me with the lifeline. He didn't go in. No, I did the job. But he wouldn't be aware of what was no. happening to you. I get back to the con, and I said, well, that's it. You can ring up for my chopper to come and get me. And he said, yeah, I'm going to. Anyway, a signal comes. You're going to dive with the boat. I'm going down with the boat while they go on the exercises. I said, okay. So the skipper says, go into the wardroom, have whatever you want to drink. I said, yeah, thanks very much, sir. So down I went and I'm down there and face submerged and I could hear the pinging going on. Ping, ping, ping. And I thought, yeah, they're going to definitely find this sub. Anyway... Chief diver, report to the con. So I went up. He said, have a look through there. So I had a look through the action periscope and there was the Melbourne stern. He said, press that button. So I pressed the button and that sends the smoke float up right astern of Melbourne. Means they've been shot right in the propellers. And uh, the skipper said, well, this is going to be a story for you, isn't it? Because I'm going to wire him when we surface that you... But that was your mission. They were there to be a target for the fleet to try and detect them and vice versa, yeah. But they couldn't. The skipper was bloody good, mate. He he went everywhere. Bill, besides fixing the submarine, you also helped a US Navy ship that was... um, USS Durant, alongside Hobart. The uh, Durant was a DE, destroyer escort. They've got no double bottoms. The main engine sits on girders. And there's the bottom, there's the sea outside it. Well, she'd been to the Christmas Island bombs and she was all cracked. They couldn't control the water coming in. And he was dead scared if he's going north to Hawaii and he gets into a storm, he could break in half. So I went over and I had a look around and I said, oh, yeah. I said, our shipwrights will fix this. No problem. I got the shipwrights, told them what to do. Let's make up this event fondue, lay it in. And once it's in and dried, 
shore in so that it can't come out and make sure you've got bearers tightening up the bulkheads. So when I go back and I see the skipper, he says, well, that was a bloody good job you've done. I said, oh, yeah, it's all right. I said, it's the usual procedure that you thank the Admiral, thank you for your divers and thank you for your help. And uh, he said, oh, I'm going to do that. I said, yeah, well, don't forget. He said, no, I won't. So he did. McNichol, the Admiral, calls me up and he says, read this. I said, oh, yeah, he's a good bloke, a nice fella. He said, read the bottom of it. And special thanks to Chief Fitzgerald for doing such a good job. And McNichol said, did you have anything to do with the composition of this letter? I said, no. Why would I do that? So, Bill, leaving your American friends, you don't get posted to Vietnam, but you're running Rush Cutter as the chief instructor. Yeah, training coordinator. Well, I had about four or five classes running at the same time. I used to do the coordinating between the other instructors with these courses. So, Bill, I understand you played a bit of rugby with the Navy. The divers had a rugby team. Watson was our main competition because they used to win the Dempster Cup and they were big time. Watson was a lot of people. We were only a few. We used to train in overall, in the water, in bare feet, right, running around asphalt, and we challenged Watson, the winners of the Dempster Cup, to a rugby match, and we played that game down in Rushgutters Bay Park. They were leading 15-0 at half-time. We went behind the dressing shed, had a whiff of oxygen, a half a glass of rum, right, took our boots off and beat them 30-15. Fantastic. It was the greatest fight you'd ever seen. Lorraine Crap Trophy, water polo, three years running. Now, Bill, there's a bit of a story about the water polo because I understand you coached the boys. I did. And you coached them in diving suits. No. Overall, with three-pound lead weights in the pocket. So when they actually played... They were walking on water. Four quarters in the water during the water polo, and I used to do four quarters... I used to come out of the water perspiring. Unbelievable. So, Bill, when did you eventually leave the Navy? I left it in 1966, the permanent service. I did five years emergency reserve, seven years naval reserve, and five years, 132 days and 28 minutes fleet reserve. Altogether, 37 years, 132 days and 28 minutes. You never really left the Navy, did you? Never. I'm still there. The clearance divers today have a reputation as being the Navy's special forces and the work they've done since 1955 has been significant. Bill, it's been quite a legacy, your whole life and your whole service. Yes. And today we're down at Warrywood at a lovely nursing home and your wife Madge is with you. How do you reflect back on such a full life? I say to myself, if I had my time over again, I'd do it exactly Bill, it's been a remarkable career and story. Your service has been around the world for this nation. We thank you for it. Thank you again, Bill. To hear the story of a 21st century clearance diver, go back to season two and listen to number 25, Paul DeGelder. He's a former army paratrooper, Navy clearance diver, shark attack survivor, 
and now a motivational speaker. We lost about 70% of the course, most of them on that first day. 50 or 60 push-ups, 10 or 15 chin-ups, a 2.4 out of 500 meter fin. So you're in your, your overalls and you've got a pair of fins on, on the surface on your back, kicking your legs. No worries. And then we went and did um, the gate to gate, the infamous gate to gate. And it takes hours. And it's not, it's not even that long. Like the loop is from the dive school up the hill around down near Chowder Bay and then back up and back to the dive school. It was really not that far. It took about three hours. And we're doing fireman's carries, hill sprints, Indian file, stair sprints, push-ups, and all the while you're getting goaded by the, the DS, by the, the staff. You get on the bus. It's nice. There's a nice warm coffee waiting for you. You don't need to go through this. Sh-. Just yelling at you and beasting you the whole time. It's really working on your morale. Get back down to the dive school. It's dark by this point and everyone's shattered. And they go, all right, you got two minutes to stretch up and we're doing it again. For photos related to Angus's conversation with Bill, look us up on social media. We're at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and on Twitter at LOTLPod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.